Tonight I want to speak about seeing the world or seeing our life through Dharma eyes. You know, if you um, listen to the news on the radio or you more appropriately, if you see the news on the radio, they show you a clip of some event you know, 30 seconds or a minute or two. And you see for yourself, that's what occurred. And then these talking heads tell you what you saw and how you should understand what you saw for the next half hour. And there are, you know, alternate views of how to understand what you heard or what you saw. And by the time you listen to all of the different spins, the different ways of spinning the story, you've lost touch with what you actually saw and knew for yourself. Well, our, our minds are filled with all kinds of spinmeisters. How we understand our experience has been put in there by our parents and teachers and the government and others that we have associated with and exposed ourselves to throughout our whole life. And it is very hard to actually have this experience of being a human being and understanding it for ourselves. Because, you know, when you just go through the checkout counter at the grocery store, there are 25 magazines there that are telling you how you should, what you should, when you should eat, play, invest your money, have sex or not, and go to the movie or not. It's just... We have a lot of guidance, a lot of direction, a lot of competing ways of seeing the world. Well, the Buddha said that it's also important, and it is an important factor in the Buddhist teachings, to have right view, to see things through the eyes of the Dharma, if you will. And so tonight I want to speak about how it would be to see our world, our life, our experience, through the eyes of the Dharma. Saito Tejaniya says, you know, there are three jobs for a yogi. And the first is to hear and apply right view. The second is to establish awareness. And the third is to persevere in the continuity of that awareness. But first is to hear and to establish or see your experience through right view. Right view, we could say, or when I say right view, and when the Buddha talks about right view, or Utejaniya talks about right view, we're talking about the way of seeing things that leads to less suffering. 
for oneself and others. And there are other ways of seeing the same experience, but leads to suffering for oneself and others in one form or another. So when I say right, I mean right in the sense of leading to more understanding, wholesome states of mind, compassion, generosity, rather than the unwholesome states of mind that lead to suffering. Now, right view has a a strong place of standing in the Buddha's teachings. You know, the, the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the fourth noble truth of the Buddha's teachings, the Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. The training in morality, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. The training in meditation or um, samadhi, concentration, they say. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the training in wisdom, which is right view and right thought or right intention. So right view has a predominant place in the Buddha's teachings in the vehicle of how to free oneself from suffering, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. Sariputta, the second to the Buddha in wisdom, was speaking with some monks at one time, and they asked him about right view. And they asked, well, how, basically, how do we establish right view within ourselves? Which is a question we might ask ourselves. If right view is this important in the path to liberation, freedom from suffering, well, how do we get right view? And Sariputta said there are two elements or two requirements, really, for establishing right view. And the first of these is you must hear what the right view is from someone else. And the second is you must then apply wise attention. Now, that first requirement is a little bit of a confront to us because we're we're all pretty educated and we have part of our educational training is a lot of problem solving looking at things solving problems figuring out for ourselves how to fix things make things better whatever we do and so we have a lot of uh, self-reliant confidence in our own way of understanding and here's Sariputta second to the Buddha in wisdom, saying, even with that, you won't arrive at right view by yourself. Huh. <laughs> no, it's kind of like, oh, really? Well, think, think about this. You know, from our direct perception of experience, we see the sun rise over there, traverse the sky, and set over there. And a few hours of dark later, we see it rise again over there, where it did yesterday, and set over there, behind us. 
from our direct perception, we would think the sun revolves around the earth. There's almost no way that we could figure it out otherwise. That's just that that's the way we see it. That's how you would understand it. And for many years, of course, that's that's what people believed. But then there were those who at some time in the past were able to gather more data than just that and they determined that no, the sun does not revolve around the earth. It does not circle the earth. In fact, the earth is spinning around to create day and night and it travels in circles around the sun. Now, we have been told that way of understanding experience from the time we could ask questions about the sun. And now every one of us in this room believes, or no one in this room believes, that the sun circles the earth. And yet we've never been able to see it for ourselves. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yet that's one example of having, needing to hear right view of the way it is with the sun and the earth and how day and night are established before we can see it and confirm it for ourselves. There's also the, the belief that was held by humans for a long time that the earth is flat. Because from the way that people traveled at that time, in the course of a lifetime, it was always flat. They never got very far around, or not so far around that they came back where they started. And it was only through those who understood things in a more refined way, when told that the earth is round, that they were able to prove, and then able to prove it, that now we all believe the earth is round. Of course, we've seen photos from space, so we know. But... You know, Photoshop is really good. <laughs> so, okay. So, I just want to kind of give you some reason to believe that maybe the Buddha was right, or maybe Saraputra was right, that we do need to hear right view. Because the right view is very counterintuitive to what we actually, how we would understand things from our own non-Dharma eyes or non-dharma way of understanding. So tonight I want to speak about right views of dharma, right views of meditation, and right views of liberation. All of them are directly applicable to the work that we're doing here. The dharma is the truth, the way things are, this moment's experience, the teachings of the Buddha. And the study of the Dharma is the study of the way things are. So when we're practicing, we're studying the Dharma. We're studying the way things are in this mind and this body. We're looking to observe how it is, not what we want it to be, not what we hope it be, not even what we've been told it is, but how it really is from our direct perception. How is it 
in this mind and body. And so we could say that the Dharma, being the study of the mind and the body, is really the study of nature. The way things are is the nature of things, or the natural processes that unfold this life. Now, in a way, we could say through our Dharma practices that we are scientists of the mind or scientists of the heart because we're looking at what's going on here, not just in the body, but in the mind. We're really observing in a way to gather the data, to then analyze the data, look at the data and see, decide for ourselves how it is. So Dharma is a study of nature and natural processes. Then all that occurs in the body and the mind is natural. There isn't anything unnatural or not nature happening in the body and the mind. It's all happening due to the lawful nature of causes and effects. What appears in our experience doesn't appear accidentally. It doesn't appear kind of randomly. It appears because of fulfilling the causes and conditions for its appearance. And we are heir to any number of causal conditions. For example, the Buddha looked at this experience of human life and he understood the natural laws that we are heir to. One of them being the laws of biology. You know, we are a living organism and so quite naturally this body follows or is guided by or is controlled by, you might say, the laws of biology. You know, and in our case, you know, we're born with a genetic profile from our mother and father or from whatever whatever got together to to give birth to you or to to me comes with a genetic profile that's a biological fact it's a it's a given it's something that we have to live with it's not like we have a choice about whether we want to be a biological organism and so this body is going to follow its biological laws and it isn't a matter of do you want to or not or do you believe it or not it's like it's going to happen you know and and the most we can do is just kind of get in alignment with it and suffer less we're not going to stop it we're not going to change the laws of biology and so we could say that wow so much of our experience is completely out of our kind of out of our hands is guided by the laws of nature the laws of biology the very fact of seeing and hearing and tasting all of those are functions guided by the laws of biology it's not a matter of whether we like it or not there's another area of the laws of nature that we're 
subject to, and that is the laws of, uh, the physical laws of nature, like gravity. <laughs> you know, we don't have a choice of whether we're going to live with the law of gravity or not. That's, that's the way it is. You can, you can try otherwise, but you'll suffer. Actually, knowing about the laws of nature, law, knowing about the law of gravity, uh, we're more careful and suffer less because we, we accept that, oh, this is the way it is. So to the chemical uh, and physical laws of nature that are operating in the body all the time. You know, if you eat this kind of food, it's not a matter of whether you can make it better for yourself. If it's junk food, it's going to have its effect. This is just the laws of chemistry doing its thing, whether it's medical laws or medical, medical understanding or chemical understanding. These laws are immutable not subject to our manipulation. And generally, those are the, that's the realm of the laws of nature that Western science is, is familiar with. But in the Buddha's understanding, he went a little further, and he, in looking at the mind, arrived at further laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. Now, we might question this, we might say, really? How do we know? And again, it's one of those areas of knowledge that has been um, brought forth on the face of the earth by those who spent their time, lifetime or lifetimes, uh, looking at, observing, trying to understand the nature of the mind, the unfolding of the mind. Why does the mind do what it does? And so the Buddha articulated these laws that govern the unfolding of the mind. And we can, we can hear them, we can apply them, we can believe them or not, but like the law of gravity, if we don't act in alignment with them, we suffer unnecessarily. One of them is the law that governs the unfolding of the mind, the processes of the mind, how it happens that the mind works the way it does. When an object, when a sight strikes the eye, it's like it, it accesses the mind. You know, we, we gain access to the mind through the eye door, or through the ear door, or through the tongue door, the nose door, the body door, or the mind. That's how we get access to the mind. If we didn't have senses, how would you, how would you know you had a mind? And so the Buddha looked at the functioning of the mind to see how it unfolds, why it unfolds the way it does. Why do we go through the kind of sequence of experiences we do in our mind that you've been observing all day? It's not random. It's not random. We think it's random because, well, we, we haven't paid that close of attention. We, haven't, we don't understand how it's unfolding. We don't, we're not uh, aware of the, the big picture or the small picture. We're barely able to stay present and be aware of the present moment. So, one of the um, one of the things that the Buddha noticed, or one area of the unfolding of the mind that the Buddha noticed, is that when a human is born, just like they have a genetic profile, they also have a mental profile. And it's as if we come in with a kind of a genetic imprint or a mental. Uh, kind of like a baseline. 
one area of baseline is our paramis. We all have a parami profile, meaning we all come in with a certain development of the paramis within the mind already. Some people are generous or not, or loving or not, understanding or not, patient or not. And we can see for ourselves that, you know, even in young children, there's a pretty, at times, a very clear uh, difference and distinction uh, among how they come in to the world. It's not through learning something in this lifetime. It's already there. And just as there's a parami profile, there's also what we call the... uh, the anusia index. Anusia are the latent defilements, the defilements that are just lying in the mind, waiting for a good opportunity to kind of arise and bother you. And there's that index. It's just kind of what we've done in the past. It's kind of just waiting there. Karma is also another... Uh, we have a karmic profile. I was speaking with a couple of young women in um, Seattle a couple of years ago. And both of them were young, young professional women, and in talking with them over lunch, both of them said they never wanted to have children. And I was just reflecting back to them. You know, in in all of human history, the women that would choose not to have children were mostly nuns. Other than that. <laughs> Not much choice. That was your lot in life. And I said, did you ever think about, you're not just a genetic uh, being, you're also a karmic being, that maybe your karmic birth is from the line of nuns that have existed on the face of the earth. And it's just a way of understanding ourselves that we're not only a genetic being but we're also a karmic being or we have a karmic profile. There are many other mental legacies, I won't go into it now, but when we begin to as I've encouraged in the instruction you begin to look at what's going on in your practice and we, we want to understand, because it's understanding that will free our minds from wrong view. Wrong view is the cause of suffering, right view is the end of suffering. So in order to free the mind from wrong views, we have to pay attention and understand how it is that we have this kind of experience. How it is, I was working with this young woman in the front, talking this morning about how do you understand why this experience has arisen. How did you get caught in that experience? What does it mean for you? What were the conditions that gave rise to this experience? And when we understand that, then we can begin to move more skillfully through our life, you know, in alignment with these mental laws of nature that the Buddha discovered. So all that occurs in the body and the mind is governed by the laws of nature. The laws of physical nature, the biological laws, the laws of the unfolding of the mind, the karmic laws, and the dharmic laws. 
the dharmic laws are like the Four Noble Truths. It's, once, you, once you get familiar with the Four Noble Truths and you start looking at your life, it's not like you can say, well, I believe in the first one and the second one, but I don't know about the third one, or I, I don't really believe in that first Noble Truth, you know, the, the truth of Dukkha. I'm not going to live with that one. Well, you can choose. You can say, it's not a matter of belief. You can say what you want, but if you live in alignment with the dharmic laws, you suffer less. If you live in opposition to or obstructing the laws of nature or dharma laws, you can be sure you'll suffer more. So all that occurs in the body and mind is nature, it's natural, it's a natural process. It arises due to causes and conditions. Whether we know what those causes and conditions are, we can investigate and discover them. Now, one further right view about Dharma. All Dharma practices, whether it's insight, mindfulness, loving-kindness, practicing any of the paramis, generosity, loving-kindness, equanimity, whether it's doing reflections, taking refuges, taking precepts, all of these Dharma practices cultivate wholesome states of mind. And so they're all beneficial. And in the cultivating of wholesome states of mind, they weaken the unwholesome states of mind, those states of mind that cause suffering. All Dharma practices... So it's not like we need to kind of uh, kind of pick the right one to do. It's like any of them are useful. So, right views of meditation practice. In the way we practice here, we emphasize moment-to-moment observation. And in each moment, something is being known. Is there ever a moment go by when something is not being known? Now, we may not be aware of what's being known. We may not be aware of the knowing. That's delusion. That doesn't mean that there isn't something being known. Think about the experience today that you might have had where the mind, even with your best intention to pay attention and to be present with what's happening, the mind wanders off into some train of thought. And it wanders off without your permission, and it starts thinking about something that you don't know anything about. And while it's happening, you don't know that you're thinking, you don't know that you're sitting in the room, you don't know that you're paying attention, you don't know anything. You don't know, you're not aware of anything. And yet the mind is knowing all these thoughts, all these plans, all these ideas, all these joys, sorrows, whatever is going on. And then at some point, snap out of it. Or you come back to recognizing what's being known. And you can sometimes, just in a flash, reconstruct that whole train of thought and realize that all this was going on The brain knew it, some part of you knew it, but you were completely unaware of it. Now think about it. Now wait a minute. Think about this for a minute. We're trying our best to be aware of what's going on. We're making every... we're, We're sincere. We're all sincere. 
We're dedicated. We're determined. We're resolute. We're, we know what we know what the job is, and yet it still happens. I mean, that should be confirmation that we're we're working on something big here, coming to understand the mind. Because even with that, the mind just goes off and does its own thing. <sighs> kind of scary, isn't it? Imagine if your mind wandered off in a train of thought and it never came back. I mean, just imagine. You didn't you never you never kind of you never kind of recognized that it was gone. Okay. So in every moment something is being known, whether we know it or not. Awareness practice is remembering to recognize it. Mindfulness, it means to remember. And what is it we remember? We remember this present moment is actually happening. It's, it's alive. And that's what awareness practice is. Awareness practice is not so much about creating some special effects or some special experience some special story to get lost in, some, some wandering mind that you like. It's Awareness is about remembering to recognize what's going on. Now, you know in the guided part of the meditation in the morning when I'm offering instructions saying, okay, just sit, notice the sounds in the room, notice the temperature of the room, notice what's going on in the body, notice your mental attitudes and things like that. When I'm when I'm directing your attention and you're paying attention to it, you can do that. You just kind of, you know, I say, feel the sensations in the body. You go, mm-hmm, okay, got that. Notice the temperature of the room. Uh-huh, yeah, did that. Notice the ambient sound of the room. Yeah, did that. Okay. Now, while we're being guided and directed and told, you know, what to do, we can do it. And then I stop talking. The mind... It just goes off. It just wanders away. That's because we haven't really internalized this remembering to recognize the present moment. When someone's telling us, we can remember. We'll, We'll do it. We'll recognize it. But we haven't yet fully or kind of completely internalized this reminding ourselves to remember the present moment. So... That's the work. The work is trying to remember. You know, it's easy, it's easy to be aware of the present moment. It's hard to remember to be aware. Right? So what we're doing really is cultivating remembering. That's the work of awareness. Generally speaking, or primarily speaking, the field of attention in meditation practice is our own mind and body. Yes, sometimes we're seeing sights outside, we're hearing sounds outside, we're dealing with environmental conditions, or we're contacting the environment outside. But as soon as we contact it, as soon as we see, as soon as we hear, it's in the mind. And so in all those experiences, as we pay attention, what we're really working with and what we're paying attention to is the mind. The mind is activated through the ear door, the mind is activated through the sense, sight door, 
Dung door, the mind door. So it's important to recognize that it's this body and this mind that we want to pay attention to. Because as soon as we see another body and it goes into the mind, we're working with our mind's perception, our mind's relationship to what has been seen. Now, everyone, you know, the, it's, it's said that the Buddha gave this, and I was, I was looking for it, I couldn't find the reference to it, but it said that the Buddha gave this very short discourse in which he said, there are only six things that you ever experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. That's it. That's the entire Dharma. And you think about it. That's all we've ever experienced. And yet we have created a multiplicity of, you know, issues, problems, personalities, and stuff out of just six things. Six things. Even though we all are experiencing just these six kinds of experiences, not everyone is practicing awareness, as we know. Even dogs experience six things. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and some kind of mental cogitation. Right? Are they practicing awareness? That's the, where the Zen koan comes, you know? Does a dog have Buddha, <laughs> Does a dog have Buddha nature? Mm, I'm not going to go there. Now, in, 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 uh, in this meditation practice, if every moment something is being known, that which is being known is called the object. That which is doing the knowing is called awareness. Okay. Objects are anything that can be known. Now the familiar objects are the breath, sounds, sensations in the body, thoughts. Subtler objects are moods, mental states, emotions, sometimes not so subtle. But, uh, even subtler objects that can be known are understandings. How do we understand this experience? Correctly or, or incorrectly, right view or wrong view. That's also something that can be known. And so, in the course of our meditation practice, we're going to experience a, just an immense multiplicity of objects. There's going to be all kinds of sensations in the body, all kinds of thoughts in the mind, all kinds of moods, emotions, uh, beliefs. There's just tremendous amount of objects. In this practice, I want to be careful how I say this, but really, we're not really concerned with the objects. We know that there's going to be, you know, eventually, everything. Pleasant, unpleasant, subtle, gross, physical, mental, emotional, inner, outer, things that we like, things that we don't like. There's just going to be a ton of them. It's just an incessant barrage of objects. What we're working with and cultivating here is the awareness of them. So when we start our practice and we focus, for example, on the breath, the breath is the object. The object itself has no wisdom. There's no wisdom in the breath. 
there's wisdom in the awareness of the breath. And so, here's my two-dimensional instruction. The object arises, and there's the knowing of it. Another object arises, and there's the knowing of it. Another object arises, and there's the knowing of it. Of these, of this activity, which is most important? The object, or that's it, or the knowing of it. Clearly, the objects are going to be everything. They're going to come and go. They're going to be familiar or novel. What can we learn about that? Awareness is in the knowing. What we're cultivating is the continuity of the knowing of the objects. Yet you have to have objects because in every moment there's something being known. So we're working with objects and sometimes we ask, well, what is being known? It's not so important what is being known, but do you know that knowing is happening? That's what's important. Whether it's the breath or sound or thought or sensation in the body, not important. What's important is, is there the knowing of it and do you know that? Are you aware that that's what's being known? So we're less interested in holding on to an object recurringly, whether it's the breath or a sound or a mantra or whatever, because what we're really looking for and developing is the continuity of the awareness, which arises in every moment with the changing object. Even the functions of mind, you know, the mental states, and this is something that we pay a lot of attention to in this in this practice, the attitude of the mind. What is the flavor of the mind as you're observing these changing objects? So sometimes the object arises, there's the knowing of it, but because of the nature of the object, we see it through the filter of aversion. So when an unpleasant object arises, and we know it, there is a reaction of aversion to unpleasantness. This is governed by the law of karma and the unfolding of the mind. And so quite naturally, unpleasant conditions aversion. And so there's this filter that drops over the mind or arises in the mind, and we see this object through the lens of aversion. That aversion then becomes the object that's being known. So an unpleasant sound arises, it's being known, the lens of aversion arises in the mind, and aversion becomes the object that's being known. And if we don't like it, aversion is being known by the mind that is disliking. Then there's aversion in the observing mind. There's like this trying to get rid of the aversion that we saw in the first place. Now the the observing mind is also contaminated. What we're working with here is to try to to have this uh, non-commenting, non-judgmental observation. But we have to watch the attitude of the mind. Because if if we're practicing, if we're watching with a critical mind, or if we're watching, observing what's happening with a striving mind, 
or with a skeptical mind or with a lazy mind, we're not going to see things. We're not going to see things correctly. And so often we miss the attitudes of mind with which we are actually practicing and observing. Particularly in striving. You know, we're observing, changing objects, but there's so much pressure in this observing and so much intensity and so much expectation that we don't even notice. And so we encourage you to relax. Relax the body, relax the mind. Now, if I ask you to relax the body, you know what to do. You kind of turn your attention in here, find out where you're holding, and go, oh, okay, right. Okay, just relax the body. And when I ask you to relax your mind, what do you do? <laughs> How do you relax your mind? How do you relax your mind? We relax our mind by letting go of any agenda in practice, letting go of any expectation in practice, letting go of any desire to achieve, accomplish, get, become, have in practice. And just let the mind observe quite naturally the way things are. If we add some spin to it, desire, I want to see this more clearly. Already, the mind is tight, not relaxed. And so it won't see, it won't see. It'll get tired, really. So we're working with the observing mind in developing awareness. Yes, there's objects moment to moment. That's not so important. What's important is the quality of the observing and the recognition of it. Meditation is the work of the mind. Meditation, in this case, the awareness of each momentary experience. But any work of the mind contributes to effective meditation. So even hearing, listening to this talk, reading the book that we handed out, reading the reminders of right attitude, these are working with the mind. They're they're adjusting the mind so that the mind can be more um, appropriate in its work of knowing moment-to-moment experience. So we can see that it's working with the mind, informing the mind with information, using the mind, reflecting on how to practice. Reflect. You know, we have to think about how to practice skillfully. You can't just hear the instructions and assume that it's going to happen. You actually have to think about, now how do I, how do, I do this? In practice, if we don't think, we can't practice effectively. But of course, there's a lot of thinking that is just unwholesome rambling. That's not effective. But we have to think about practice skillfully, what we've heard, how to apply it, and whether that's what we're actually doing as we're practicing. Sayadaw likes to ask the question, are you thinking or are you aware? And so often, all that we're doing is thinking, and we know that we know the content of our thought, we know the kind of the story, we know the narrative that's going on, but we're not really observing 
the fact that thinking is happening. So it's important to ask yourself this question a lot. Is this just thinking or is there awareness of thinking? Meditation is observing with interest. And I like to... Interest. Sometimes interest can have, you know, a little edge to it, like, I'm interested. And you really get, well, you kind of tense the mind. I like to use the phrase of a willing observation. And you can ask yourself, am I willing to experience this moment's Am I willing to experience it? Because sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's sometimes we're tired. But are you willing to experience? Are you willing to feel what this moment feels like? That's the level of interest that we need to cultivate. Is a willingness to open to to take in to kind of rock it, to get it, to kind of taste this, this experience. You know, we can eat without, really ta- without tasting our food. We can live life without really tasting our experience. Practice is learning how to really taste each moment, feel it, and know what the taste of this moment really is. So we have right view of the Dharma, right view of meditation. I want to speak a little bit about right view about liberation. Because that's the direction we're going. But when I talk about liberation, I'm talking about freedom from suffering. That's what we're liberating. We're liberating the mind from tendencies, habits, uh, confusions, delusions that lead to suffering. And so liberation is really freedom from suffering. That's what we're talking about. How do we do that? Well, first, we have to understand how to see, how to understand what it is that we see in our experience. And so this, this willing observation leads to knowledge about the way things are, and then we understand and apply that knowledge skillfully. I'll give you an example. The way the weather pattern moves through the, the sky is out of our control. We don't, I mean, in a, in, a, in a person-to-person sense, we don't really control it. As a whole humanity, it seems like we're having an effect, but nevertheless, uh, for the most part, we don't control the weather. But if we observe the weather and how it forms and when it rains and when it's a drought and when the winds blow and when the snow comes and when the, the seasons change, we just observe, oh, this is, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Eventually, we gather a whole pile of data and we begin to understand, oh, this is the way it is. When we use that knowledge to decide when to plant seeds, when to harvest crops, and how to do that, then we're using knowledge skillfully, which is wisdom. So the same thing applies to ourselves. We just observe this mind. We observe this body. 
we observe the unfolding through all kinds of conditions, including suffering and non-suffering. Eventually, we begin to understand what leads to suffering, what leads to less suffering or no suffering. When we then apply that knowledge to our life, making decisions, different decisions, on what we do, how we do it, what we say, when we say it, how we say it, who we say it to, how we, who we associate with, what we do with our life, with our discretionary time. This is using knowledge wisely. This is wisdom. It's that wisdom, it's the application of wise knowledge that frees us from suffering. But you can't read this in a book. You can't get this in a book. You can read the books and you can hear everything I'm saying, you can read everything I'm saying, but we actually have to observe our own body and our own mind to know for ourselves what is it that causes suffering and what is it that leads to the end of suffering. That's the development of wisdom. When we begin to understand the way things are, or the way things have come to be within ourselves, we're beginning to see through Dharma eyes. We're beginning to see through the eyes of the way it is. Not that we just believe what Sariputta said, or what the Buddha said, or even what I've said. But we let these, uh, these facts guide our unfolding of understanding. Sometimes some of what I say may not be confirmable yet. But it's laying down a track in the mind. It's like when you get to this place in your practice, this knowledge will emerge to show you the way, how to understand this experience in a way that leads to less suffering. So even if it's not happening for you now or not apparent to you now, just even having heard right view about Dharma, having heard right view about meditation practice, having heard right view about the nature of liberation, it's in there. So that when you practice, as you practice, and wisdom emerges or knowledge is gained, the wisdom will be there. You'll recognize it. Just like having the nature of the mind pointed out to you. We've lived with this mind for decades. And until we hear someone point to the mind and say, notice this, look, here's the mind. We don't see it. But once we hear it, then we can see it. So too with this mm, understanding of seeing our life through Dharma eyes, the right view of the Dharma, the right view of practice, the right view of liberation. When we understand the way things have come to be, then we can begin to uproot wrong beliefs and live in harmony or live in alignment with the way things are. And this is seeing the world and living, seeing the world through Dharma eyes and living a life of awareness. So let's just sit for a few moments, let the words quiet down. Thank mm-hmm. you.